Welcome to episode 75 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, it's our final review of a 2019 movie as we weigh in on Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Foxx in the fact-based legal drama, Just Mercy. But first, how are you, Scott? I'm doing great, Scott. It's been a, it's been a fun week. I uh, saw 1917 in a total of three times over the course of the week. Saw Knives Out on Friday night for the third time. So it's just, you know, revisiting some of the movies that I enjoyed the most uh, from from the last year, which is the best way to send this off. And in terms of the podcast, the best way to send up 2019 with another uh, good movie. I will tease that it, it doesn't quite break into the upper echelon of movies of the year for me, uh, not at least the top, top tier, but still a good movie. And of course, everyone knows that I'm partial to Michael B. Jordan. So what better way to send up 2019 talking about Michael B. Jordan? No, I, I was uh, I, I had my round three of Little Women this week. So um, it, it is it, it was such a great year for movies that sometimes I think this period where all of the Oscar stuff is getting rescreened and everything is kind of like downtime. You don't want to go to the theater anymore because you've seen everything. But yeah, for me, it's like I want to go. I mean, like I'm not first of all, I'm not ruling out round four for Little Women. Um, 1917, I want to see again. Knives Out. Like I. I will go see any of these movies on any given day for, you know, the second, third, whatever time, because they're all great. Yeah. I mean, one of the outstanding things to think about, I feel, is that Knives Out is still getting like regularly four or five screenings Mm -hmm. a day at most theaters. And that movie came out almost two months ago now. Yeah. And especially if you think that that is what one of the movies that made it through and waited through the Christmas period, which was very packed with, you know, very, I mean, little women. 1917 uncut gems star wars star wars just mercy i mean so many movies came out in that december period frozen 2 even right i mean it's still getting screens too yeah. uh that it, the fact that that's risen to the top it made i think 200 million domestically which is just, i mean uh, that's incredible to me for an original film made. yeah yeah exactly i mean i know murder on the orient express made more than that did a couple years ago but still i just think it's it's so impressive and you know i took uh i took my girlfriend's family to see it uh, on friday night the whole family and that movie, I wasn't sure if everyone in the family would love would love it, but truly a movie for the whole family. Uh, everyone okay. came out. I was going to say so. they're they're not too much like the Thrombies or, or anything. <laughs> no, 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 they're not too much like the Thrombies. That's good. Um, no, my, yeah, my no, house, but, my coffee, my rules, baby. <laughs> but that is definitely one of the the draws too is taking people who haven't seen these movies to to see them for the first time. I think I'm going to go see 1917 with my roommates maybe tomorrow. Um, right. so I just like seeing people experience these movies for the first time. It's also really fun. Yeah. And I'm excited to, to actually go. So usually the, the best picture marathons that like AMC and a lot of the big chains do, those are usually when I'm traveling for the swimming and diving championships that I, that I work at. And so I never get the chance to do them, but this year, because the Oscars are so early, I get to, I actually have the time to do it this year. So I'm going to brave the, the great marathon of Oscar films. It doesn't include the Irishman. It doesn't include marriage story uh, because they're Netflix films, but it is doing the other seven nominees, which alone is 19 hours. I'm not doing them back to back. It's over two days, but I'm equipping myself. I did a lot. Pre- yeah, I did appreciate that they put Little Women after Joker, so I can cleanse yes. my palate pretty quickly. Uh, but we'll see. 
I can't think of anything better to cleanse the palate. But yeah, no, I looked at it for here, but it's not coming to any theaters around here. They're not doing it around here. I don't know that I could have lasted anyway. But I mean, and I would, I just, I straight up would not have watched Joker again. But yeah. all right, Scott. Well, with that, let's get into our review of Just Mercy. Uh, based on the best-selling book by attorney Brian Stevenson, Just Mercy traces Stevenson's rise from an idealistic Harvard student to a trailblazing civil rights attorney, primarily through the story of one seminal case in his career. That case is his defense of Walter Johnny D. McMillan, a black shop clerk from Alabama who is on death row for a murder that he claims he did not commit. With the help of fellow attorney Eva Ansley, played by Brie Larson, Stevenson dives into, dives into McMillan's case but the deeper he becomes invested, the more he discovers a broken system marred by racism, classism, and a host of other prejudices. Scott, did Just Mercy's hard-hitting drama leave you feeling inspired, or does this film fail to capture the power of the true life story? Yeah, it's so interesting. And I so I actually went to a screening of this at, at the Arclight near my apartment that showed the pre-recorded Q&A that the FYC group did at the Arclight Hollywood when they did their FYC screening for it. So it was really interesting uh, to get that right after the film and hear Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Foxx, who were the people they were interviewing, uh, their perspectives and their takes on the film. And one of the things that I noticed is that, you know, everyone's talking about, you know, Scott Mance, Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Foxx were all like, we didn't know who Brian Stevenson was before, you know, our agents. Well, not, well, Jamie Foxx is a little different because he came on late, but Michael B. Jordan was, who's an EP on the project. You know, he was given the book by his agent or something and said, hey, read this, check this out. Um, there might be a, you know, a movie deal in it for, in, in this. And the fact that these guys hadn't heard of Brian Stevenson, I was a little bit surprised and maybe I'm a little bit biased for that. I mean, I did my, you know, a lot of my research in college was related to wrongful convictions and Brian Stevenson is obviously a huge part of that field. So I was very aware of him. He actually spoke at my graduation. Uh, Brian Stevenson did. He was like my so graduation jealous. speaker. And so it was one of the things where I was pretty aware of him. So I came into Just Mercy know knowing about the kind of person that he was, what he did with his life. And I found it really interesting to think about the fact that most people who go see this movie or even who were involved in making this film weren't super familiar with who Brian Stevenson was. And I think that that with that lens, kind of thinking back on it, I find it super interesting because I really feel like this movie captures really well you know what Brian Stevenson was trying to do again, obviously I'm not in intimately familiar with the like the real life details of the McMillan case, but it feels like Michael B. Jordan is putting in a performance here. That's worthy uh, of Brian Stevenson. It's one of those things where it, if I didn't know that, you know, certain speeches in the film were word for word, what Brian Stevenson said, you, you might roll your eyes a little bit and think, oh, that's kind of hokey that that he's like giving this closing argument or whatever at the end of the trial and, and, and saying these things as opposed to like making a real case for his client or whatever. And, but those are those are exactly what it says in real life. That's what he said. You know, they have the court transcripts from the trial and stuff to recreate, you know, line by line exactly what some of those arguments were like. And I think that that authenticity to the true story is something that, yes, of course, there's going to be creative license throughout the film, and there's creative licenses through a lot of narratives, uh, and in fact, probably pretty liberal creative license and a lot of uh, true life narratives. But this one just felt really true to life. And I think that helps the movie at times. I think it maybe hurts a little bit at times. I, but I, I love the performances in this one. I mean, we all know that I'm partial to Michael B. Jordan. I'm partial to Brie Larson. I think that both of them are absolutely outstanding actors and actresses. And Destin Daniel Cretton is a really good director. Uh, is this his first film since Short Term 12? Oh, no, he did a movie. The Glass Castle. He did The, gla the Glass yeah. Castle with Woody B. Harrelson and Brie Larson. And, uh, 
What did I say? Woody B. Harrelson? Woody, Woody Harrelson. B. Harrelson. <laughs> I was like, okay, you're on interesting name basis with him. No, uh, that's right. I forgot that he did that movie. And, you know, he's doing Shang-Chi next. So he's in the Marvel Universe. But I think that what he's able to capture here really captures this. I didn't see the glass castle, but it really captures the. I don't know what the right, the atmosphere I felt in the short term 12 of obviously thematically very different films and, and the context of the films are quite different, but I really felt uh, that, that through line there. And it's something that I really appreciate because short term 12, you know, one of the best movies of the decade, an absolutely fantastic film um, from was it 20, 2013, 2014, 2013, 2013. And so to, to see that here, to see Brie Larson, to see Michael B. Jordan, and then Jamie Foxx, who I think gives, does give the standout performance. I think is is phenomenal. I, I, one of the things that I think that doesn't work as well for me is that, yes, the McMillan trial is an, is an interesting case study, especially for you know a community that you know regardless of guilt, right? Just it, it, the way that they treat the people uh, they they have incarcerated on on death row, right? That that's the whole. I mean, if anything, that that's the actual main theme of the movie is that we should treat people better than the worst moments of of their life. And, you know, the death penalty being the kind of the antagonist in the film more so than than any one person. And I thought that was an interesting approach to take for the film. Of course, there are antagonists that you can point to out the film who are the villains, but it really did feel like the death penalty was the enemy in, in the film more so than anything else. And, that, and that's something that I didn't necessarily expect. And I and I, and I actually really liked it. But the thing that I think worked the least for me is that how little I felt like I learned about Brian Stevenson. And maybe that's because I was more familiar with with Brian Stevenson's life and, and career already. But one of the frustrating things for me is that I didn't really feel like I walked away from the film knowing anything beyond the surface level about Brian Stevenson. I don't think it explores his relationship with his family very well. It certainly doesn't explore you know, his relationship even with, with Brie Larson's uh, Eva very well at all. And, and I don't even know if it's very, it's a very introspective movie beyond a couple of moments where Brian, Brian, you know, Michael B. Jordan's Brian has, you know, comes to terms with the fact of exactly what he's gotten himself into. I don't really feel like it, the movie wrestles too much with that, yet it still, I think, ultimately succeeds in in one of the key things that it's trying setting out to do. And I wonder if people who are less familiar with Brian Stevenson might feel differently when they walk out of the film. They might they might feel like they've learned quite a bit about him, and so that might be my own biased uh, coming into the movie and, and not really feeling like I learned very much about him. But the movie is about Brian Stevenson, in my opinion. Yes, the McMillan trial is kind of the context for what you're learning about him, but the movie doesn't succeed in creating an interesting story about Brian. And that's the that's the one downside, I'd say, of the film. Yeah, Scott, I, I think I agree with that. And uh, overall, what I would say is that this is almost, uh, in some ways, a hard movie for me to talk about and review because it is like maybe the most personal movie for me that um, we've ever talked about on the podcast. Uh, like Brian Stevenson is one of my like personal heroes um, and the death penalty and, and the very issues which are confronted in this movie are some of the issues, I guess you call, can call them political issues, um, that I feel the strongest about. Um, and so I think I was always going to be affected by this movie. I mean, there are, there are several movies on this same topic, I think, that um, hit hit home with me and, and you know, are, are some of my all-time favorites movies like The Hurricane and Dead Man Walking or two that I think are, uh, you know, touch on similar topics. So this movie was always going to strike a chord with me. And I definitely think that the movie has flaws um, and, and we'll get into those. I do think that that the Brian Stevenson character uh, or, you know, we don't learn that much about him. Um maybe by design, right? Because they have, they have made a conscious choice about the story that they want to tell here, as opposed to the story perhaps that is told in the book. 
Um, and I do want to ask a little bit more about that later, um, about whether you think that choice was wise or not. Um, but I think because of that, the character development of Brian suffers uh, because we are sort of uh, hyper-focused, laser-focused on this one case. Um, I, I also think that this movie perhaps doesn't do as good of a job as I was hoping at taking down the system as a whole because yes we we you know see everything through this this Jamie Fox character we're following this Jamie Fox uh, the Walter McMillan case and in the end right Walter McMillan was innocent right he was wrongfully on death row but i wanted the movie maybe to confront more the people who are you know rightfully convicted but wrongfully on death row right the the idea that no one should be on death row regardless of what um crime they've committed, which I think is something that Brian Stevenson wholeheartedly believes. Um, and, and, you know, maybe again, because they just chose to focus on this McMillan case that they, this wasn't the proper vehicle for that sort of critique, but I still would have liked to see, and they, they flirt with it at times, like at times, yeah. partic particularly the end of the, like the, the, what, what is on the screen at the end, the words that come up on the, uh, uh, at the end of the movie talking about the death penalty, like those were powerful statistics and everything to me. But I don't know that I felt like the movie earned, like, get, you know, getting to show those statistics at the end. Um, yeah, and, and, at times the movie does flirt exactly to your point. I mean, there there yeah. are several subplots of the film that are at at times it feels like the movie's going to dive into those plot lines, but they don't like the the two people that, you know, Jamie Foxx's McMillan is kind of talking with while he's in, on death row. You know, Rob Morgan's Herbert or O'Shea Jackson Jr.'s Ray. Like, those are people who it. Like we know that they well, we don't know about Ray, but we know Herb has like committed a crime with a certain context. I mean, it's not really a spoiler, but like he's on death row for a crime that he did commit. But there is a certain context around the crime that might be, you know, a reason why he sh definitely shouldn't be on death row. And it feels like at times it's going to explore that. And it does explore that component a little bit, but it doesn't ever take the stance to your point, I think, that I thought it was going to take about the death penalty. But sorry, continue. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think even the Tim Blake Nelson character that, yeah. that comes up, they flirt with it a little bit in that too. They just, but they didn't go all the way with it, which I mean, you know, maybe that's just my personal bias. And again, my strong feelings about this particular issue and yeah. wanting them to hit it even harder. But ultimately there are some incredibly powerful scenes in the movie. Um, you mentioned Herb, right? The, the Rob Morgan character. Um, there's an entire sequence that happens with him that I went to a, a sold out early screening of this and everyone was just crying when this happened. And like, it, it's hard not to, it's hard not to be affected by it. And it's hard not to be affected by the ending of the movie as well. Um, and so like those things, you know, definitely hit home with me. I think Jamie Foxx gives an incredible performance in this movie. I, I don't know why he isn't being, you know, was it talked about for, for Oscar consideration really? Uh, because I think it absolutely belongs in that best supporting actor um, conversation. Um, I, I'm not as, thrilled with the Michael B. Jordan performance, maybe as, as you are Scott, but, and, and we can get into the reasons why on that. Um, again, maybe this is just my personal feelings and uh, feeling the way that I do about Brian Stevenson and idolizing him as I do. Um, I, I don't know that um, Michael B. Jordan brought the vibe that I was looking for, for that character, but he's a great actor, right? Like there, there's no denying that. And he, he has a charisma that draws you in. And so ultimately, while I feel like the movie, like I said, it has flaws. Um, I can't do anything other than wholeheartedly recommend this movie because I think what it's saying is so important. And I think that the way it, say it says it for the most part is pretty, comp is pretty compelling and is going to 
get through to people who it probably needs to get through um, to. So overall, I, I yeah, like I said, I can't do anything but recommend it because of what yeah. it's saying. Yeah, one one of the things that I, I think that comes to my mind when I when I heard you talking about uh, how you know it, it maybe pulls its punches in certain parts and doesn't fully explore or go down an avenue of you know t- taking a hard stance on the death penalty proper during the film. I think part of that, and part of this does come from the the Q and A that I watched afterwards. But part of that is also just like the fact that it was trying to make a movie that the filmmakers are trying to make a movie that ever like that can reach and resonate with everyone in the country, right? Like I think you know we talked at the time when it got released last week, and obviously we didn't review it then. But this got, I mean, this got an A plus cinema score, and this got an A plus cinema score for a reason. Like this get this movie got an A plus cinema score for a reason because, and they were talking about this in the Q and A afterwards that like no matter where they tested this movie, I mean, this movie tested super positively and that's because it doesn't take a hard line stance on any like mm-hmm. polarizing political belief. Now I think that, that, you know, that's a conversation that we've started to have here already about what we think about that. And, and you know, a, a movie can make its own decision about whether or not it should take a stance on, on certain topics. But I think that they, the filmmakers, you know, Michael B. Jordan being an executive producer, Dustin Daniel Critton, et cetera, et cetera, here, you know, knew what they were doing. I mean, they, they knew that they had to make some tough choices about what they wanted to make their film about. And I think they chose trying to try, trying to reach with the message that they had as broad an audience as they could uh, without alienating certain parts uh, of the population who might be seeing this movie. And, you know, that that's a filmmaking decision. That's, you know, that that's a compromise that maybe you have to make if you want to make a, a slightly different kind of movie. But I think that's a, I understand, I guess I'm with, with the message that the movie does bring, I think I understand, even if I wish they had gone a step further in certain parts, I understand why they're doing that. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I think that talking about sort of the strategy and, and, you know, creating this movie, creating the story the way that they did, uh, it almost makes me think of what we talked about with the green book last year and the way that they made this movie, uh, about, you know, this friendship between this white and black man. And they, they target it towards a wide audience as possible. And while they probably uh, sacrificed some of the nuance um, that they could have gotten drawn out of that relationship uh, in order to appeal to a mass audience, we kind of talked about how maybe in the end, you know, it's, it's important that like even the simplistic message of like racism is bad. Like maybe we need that message right now. Sadly, maybe we need uh, you know, a movie that just straight up says this was wrong, that this innocent man was on death row. Um, And while, you know, maybe we would have liked it to be more radical, um, you know, from a utilitarian perspective, maybe it uh, it affects a greater number of people um, than it otherwise would. So, you know, maybe that is the ultimate good that that we should hope for from the movie. Yeah, I mean, it's it's possible. I mean, obviously, you never know what the other side of the coin would be if you'd gone if you gone on a different path. But with an A plus cinema score, I don't know how much this movie is crushing relative to his budget at the box office. I mean, I think it's made 20 million across the first two weekends, which I mean, it's not great. You know I mean? You're not knocking it out of the park, but I don't know what the ceiling for this kind of movie ever really is. So I think that it yeah. we'll see if, <laughs> I mean, I guess we won't see, but I think that this is something that is, it was a decision that they made that makes sense to me, understand. And, and I think I agree with your line of reasoning there. Yeah. Okay, Scott, let's move forward and talk about the cast now. Um, obviously, some big names here. Michael B. Jordan, Jamie Foxx, Brie Larson, um, you know, Academy Award nominated and winning actors there. Um, further down the list, you have people like Rafe Spall and Tim Blake Nelson um, and, you know, the people you mentioned, O'Shea Jackson Jr. and Rob Morgan. Um, what performances struck home, struck a chord with you particularly? 
Yeah, I think that, I mean the one that that stood out to me is definitely Jamie Fox. I think that that's the one that you, you go to this film and you sit down, you start watching. I don't think that anything knocks you really really knocks you back in your chair until until Jamie Fox really starts to perform. I mean, yes, the first scene in the film is is him out in the forest. You don't really yet have a. I mean, I, I think that you could actually cut that scene out altogether. I don't even think you need that scene. But uh, I think that his performance once you get to the jail, once you get his first interaction with Michael B. Jordan's Brian Stevenson. I think that that's when you're like, okay, th this actor, you know, came to play. And, and you know, Jamie Foxx has done a, an eclectic mix of movies over the years. I mean, he, you know, we talked last week on, when we were at doing our Academy Award nominations that he's one of the the actors who's been double nominated for in the same year for uh, Collateral, which he's phenomenal in, and, and Ray, which, you know, he's even more phenomenal in maybe. And then he does things like The Amazing Spider-Man 2. And so you don't really know what, what he's doing sometimes. But this is one of those that, you know, he got attached to and, and he really showed up for. And, and I think that that makes a lot of sense, too. I mean, there's a lot of personal significance, I'm sure, for him in this film. I mean, he talked about how his father in the Q&A afterwards, he talked about how his father had been incarcerated uh, in, uh, for, I mean, again, not the same, not in the same way that someone like McMillan was, but uh, in, in a way that really spoke like the, that this script in this movie spoke to him and that people were being incarcerated who shouldn't have been and incarcerated in ways that they shouldn't have been. And so I think the, he, not only did he bring his incredible talent to this film, but this, I think this film had a lot of personal significance to him. And, and it, to say that he put in, you know, extra time on this project to, to nail the Walter McMillan role. I think that it, I think you can absolutely say that. Uh, obviously, I don't, I don't know his method or, or how he prepares for things, but the fact that you know this is a real life figure who he never got to interview or spend time with or talk to because Walter McMillan died, you know, in the in the knots, and so he really had to put in the extra time, you know, talking to people who knew him, um, you know, researching, etc. All the all the things that actors do when when they're playing, you know, these real life figure roles. And, you know, just doing his best to adopt that. And he nails it. I think he absolutely nails it. And that's why he's the standout, I think, well above even Michael B. Jordan and Brie Larson in this film for me, uh, as well as the supporting cast as well. I mean, he's just the person I think that you, that you point to. I think, we, I mean, we'll talk about this later. I think I understand why he's not getting more uh, attention from, from the Oscars. And, and I think we can go into that later. But to me, when you see this film, you know, if you're not, if you're not blown away by, Michael B. Or sorry, not Michael Jordan. Jamie Foxx's performance. I'm not. I'm really not sure what you're going to be blown away by in this film. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think he's. It's a very understated performance too, which I really appreciate. As much as yeah. you know, the the movie is very uh, preachy at times. Uh, I don't think any of that really comes from the Jamie Foxx character. I think uh, it's it's not necessarily a, a portrayal of this type of character that we're used to seeing. Like I think yeah. like Denzel Washington, for example, in the hurricane, like one of the best, one of the greatest performances ever, in my opinion. Um, but it's a much showier performance, right? Like yeah. it, you know, he, he really has to go through a lot. Um, and I don't think that that's the type of performance that we get from Jamie Foxx here in a good way. I think that that yeah. says a lot about his character and perhaps who the real Walter McMillan was, right? Because he's, passed away now, unfortunately. Um, and, uh, and so I, I appreciated that, that decision to, you know, to, to be quieter, to be more understated with the performance. Cause, and I, I think it, it really works here. Um, and it is really powerful ultimately in, in the end, you know, when, when the, the ending that we know is coming happens. 
Yeah, and, and when you you know when you turn away from Jamie Foxx, and the reason why I think he stands out is you're right. It's a quieter performance, and it's and it's not that Brie Larson's performance or Michael B. Jordan's performance isn't also quiet at times. But I think that they just gave Jamie Foxx a lot more to do with the script. I mean, going going back to what we we're talking about, how this movie doesn't really feel like it explores Brian Stevenson very much. I don't know if I mean I assume I mean Eva Ainsley is a real life character. I mean I, I don't think she's I don't know how significant she is in, in real life. I mean just doing research, it was hard to find out anything about her, which you know isn't it's not that surprising. I mean she's not a major figure like like Brian Stevenson is, right? But I think that not, neither Brie Larson nor Michael B. Jordan were, were really given very much to do in this film to really wow the audiences. And so you know when you were talking about earlier is that you're not sure how great a performance for Michael B. Jordan it is. I'm not sure that that is much like there is that much more was asked of him other than to stand tall and like puff out his chest and and give really long you know glaring looks at different times in the film. And you know I say that kind of dismissively but i think I mean, michael b jordan i think does that well and it's just it was just unfortunate that i feel like there's only a couple times in the film where i feel like michael b jordan actually had the chance to show what he's able to do like something like what he was able to do with with oscar grant in fruitvale station or you know e even killmonger or you know uh, you know apollo uh, uh, adonis creed like, i think all those performances allow him to to show a wider range than what this film allows him to do because honestly this performance is 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 fairly one note, and I don't think it's Michael B. Jordan's fault. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that, right? Because when I heard that he was cast as Brian Stevenson, I thought that was a great bit of casting because he does have, in movies like Black Panther and Creed, he has a commanding screen presence. He really does. Yeah. And I, I didn't get that here, which I wanted because Brian Stevenson has a commanding presence in real yeah. life, I think. Um, it is and, his first case, so you, you, know, you, you wonder yeah. how that plays into the directing decisions there, but... Uh, that's that, that's definitely true. That's true. Um, yeah, you know, I, I was just thinking about that the whole time. Afterwards, I was trying to think who would I have rather seen. The person I kept thinking of was Sterling K. Brown. Maybe I think he would have been uh, a really solid choice as well. Um, but, but you may, yeah, and you may be right. Like it was probably uh, just the movie not giving him enough to do um, and yeah. en enough opportunities to show off because, like, he is one of those people who is a movie star but also a great actor. I think this performance was more coasting on his movie star, uh, you know, charisma and the fact that he is a movie star than it was really showing off the acting chops that he could bring. So that's my only that that's my misgiving about the performance. I agree that I don't think um, Brie Larson was given much to do here. I think this is probably just her signing up because of Destin Daniel Cretton, right? Who she's worked with twice before. Um, Every movie, right? That he's done. So, yeah. Um, and, you know, further down the supporting cast, though, I do think there's, you know, there's some good performances in there. Tim Blake Nelson is always yeah. a strong, um, you know, screen presence that O'Shea Jackson Jr. and uh, Rob Morgan in particular, I think, because Rob Morgan does get this one really long, powerful sequence um, are both are both really good. And some of the moments that touched me the most were the moments inside the prison with the inmates, right, with yeah. uh, Jamie Foxx and these two guys. And um I really liked those scenes in particular, right? Because that's not in the book. The book is from Brian Stevenson's perspective. So some of that is kind of the stuff that he didn't really see going on. Um, and so I thought that that was uh, an interesting and, and smart choice to, to show us that, uh, to show us a little bit of that um, side of the story too, of what Walter was experiencing and the other inmates were experiencing while they were on death row. I think that's really important to the story that it tells. Um, and so I thought that the, those two actors were really well chosen for those parts. Yeah, agreed. Um, okay, Scott, getting into the plot, and I, I do want to ask you about right, because I, I don't I don't think you've read Just Mercy, right? Yeah. So Just Mercy, the book, 
is a lot more all-encompassing, talking about Ryan Stevenson's life and uh, his career, as you probably expect, right? That certainly the Walter McMillan case is the thread that runs through the entire novel, but there are tons of other vignettes and stories and, um, you know, stuff about Ryan Stevenson himself that has affected him and, uh, you know, turned him into the person that he is today. Um, and so I guess my question is, do you think that the movie's approach, and we've talked about this a little bit, but um, maybe just to circle back for a second, do you think that the movie's approach to focus in on this one particular story um, was effective and maybe was the right choice? Or do you think that they should have gone for a all-encompassing, may, maybe uh, um, a movie that isn't as focused on this one story? And, and yeah, tell the Walter McMillan story, but also tell um, some other stories as well. How do you think that the, this movie, do you think that they, their choice was successful? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, and I think that I have thoughts on on kind of both sides of this argument here because, you know, I think all the time when we talk about, you know, book adaptations to the screen, you know, there's just, it's almost in every instance so much to adapt uh, onto the screen, right? To, to fit into a two hour or two hour plus runtime. You know, you, you have to cut things out. You have to make design decisions in order to, to create a tight enough story that is coherent on the screen. And so I think the decision to focus on one case and one story, I think it does benefit the movie adaptation. I think it, it ultimately is probably the right choice because I mean, I think, and I think that the adaptation that they bring here already is a little bit muddled in deciding what it wants to be, right? Like, like we've talked about these moments where, you know, maybe it, it leans, you know, towards maybe it's creator's intention of, of making the statement about the death penalty. I mean, I don't think there's any other way to read the scene, the scene with herb that you're alluding to then like the death penalty is bad, right? Like even if you're guilty, the death penalty is bad. And the movie kind of like, it, it's almost magnetized toward, you know, making that argument at times and then, you know, pulls back from it. You know, it, it kind of jerks away from it after a scene or two. Introducing more, you know, more vignettes, more stories or whatnot in would not only dilute the power of the message that is received on screen. I think it would also confuse what the message was supposed to be about because I can only assume that those other vignettes and stories take a, a wider spanning approach to the question of the death penalty and and not, I don't know if it's again you you would know this better than I would but I assume that there are some instances in which Brian is advocating for people who are guilty of crimes um, and there's no and there's no question of that and just arguing for their uh, for mer you know mercy in, in in terms of the death penalty, and so I yeah. think that for the story that they decided to tell in this, as much as I think that it might create a more interesting perspective of Brian, which is one of the things that I recognize that I cite as this movie was lacking. I think that for the purpose of the story that this is telling, in, unless there is a very you know wide um, reshape of of what this movie is trying to do, I think that cutting it down and taking this one story approach. I think it is the right way to go. I mean, this movie is already, in my opinion, too long. Like this movie is two hours and fifteen minutes, and it, it, it's long. Like it's it's a lot to sit through. Um, but I think that it's still effective in the in the way that it it presents itself, and it's the things that I think that it, it kind of skirts around that I think are are things that I didn't like as much. And yes, do I think that they could they could more focus and target those things that uh, that it skirted around with a broader approach. From his, for his life, yes. I just don't know if that would make for a better movie on the screen. Yeah, I think I agree. And yeah, he actually did just, I mean, there are lots of examples, but actually just very recently he argued a case at the Supreme Court and won um, basically arguing that um, a 
person who uh, like committed a murder and is on death row, but actually because of mental illness does not remember the crime that they committed, uh, should not be executed because it's cruel and unusual punishment. And he won that case. So that's an example of, right, right this person did commit the crime. They uh, Presumably they intentionally committed the crime at the time in which they committed it. Um, but because of, uh, you know, mental illness, uh, have forgotten the crime. And, and so I think that would have been a more interesting case study perhaps than, than the Walter McMillan case, but I still understand why they chose this one. And even though we, I would, uh, you know, like we've been saying, we would have liked them to, to take uh, a more radical stance. I think they do weave in some moments, right? Like we talked about some of them, the Herb uh, situation that they do undermine it a little bit by having some, um, you know, by suggesting that maybe there were some circumstances in the case, which, um, meant that he should not have been on death row, even if he was guilty. Um, but like, I think that's probably the case with most people who are on death row, right? Like, I think there, there are some circumstances in, in all of these cases that you can look at and say, should, should we really be putting this uh, person on death row when X is true? And when, you know, this is, uh, you know, the, the way that the case went down. Um, and so like, I, I guess that doesn't bother me that much. I, I also liked some of the critique of like the community that, um, Brian Stevenson is in in Alabama, right? And, and in particular, the fact that the town where um, this takes place is like the setting for To Kill a Mockingbird is like where Harper Lee is from um, in Alabama. And they, um, you know, kind of make fun of the fact that the people uh, in the town really love love the To Kill a Mockingbird, the Harper Lee Museum or whatever it is, the actual courtroom where, uh, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird is said or something like that. Yeah, I um, laughed out loud when one of the townspeople said, like, Atticus Finch argued there. I'm like, no, he didn't. Not a real person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the, the fact, right, that this story is so near and dear to their heart, and yet they can't see that it's still playing out in front of them and that they are Bob Ewell, right? They are not Atticus Finch. Um, and so the, I, I liked that that uh, element of the, the story because obviously To Kill a Mockingbird is, you know, one of the most powerful stories ever and, and something that, you know, resonates very deeply with me. So I love seeing that uh, brought back and kind of showing how, right. Like, like I said, the story is still being told today. Like the, the events of To Kill a Mockingbird are in a way still being played out, um, you know, with the death row system that we have. Um, and so I, I liked that aspect of it too. And I think ultimately if they had tried to tell like the story from the book, it would have just gotten messy and it pro probably honestly would have been better for a mini series or something. If you were going to do, um, you know, the full novel and, and tell a bunch of different stories. Cause I don't know for sure, but I actually want to say that Brian also represented Anthony, Anthony Ray Hinton. Um, because we also learn, yeah. yeah, we learn at the end of the movie that, um, he got off of death row as well. Um, yeah. Like just two years, right. 2017. Right. Yeah. So. Um, and so I, I mean, yeah, that could have been, you know, more of the, the story if they had decided to go in a different direction. But well, that's my question is like, I don't know. I don't think this would ever happen. But would you want a sequel to this movie? Right? Like, would you want them? Sure. You know, may I don't know if they would if it would be like when that would happen, right? Like, I don't know if, if you're hell bent on keeping Michael B. Jordan, you're either gonna have to age him up. Uh, or you're gonna have to like, re just recast essentially. Um, or I wait, or I want a Perry Mason style TV show about Brian Stevenson's uh, cases. I think that would be great. Yeah. I, I just wonder, like you're talking about it, it, evolution of themes here, right? And, and encompassing other stories with maybe, you know, I, I, and, and I, with, with other themes that more target this idea of, of 
the title of the movie, right? Mer- like mercy for people, even when they are guilty of crimes, right? I think that that is something that could definitely be addressed in another film. And there's a lot of vignettes for them to explore. And I do think the movie setting is good for them to explore that. Yeah, like, could it be done in a mini- miniseries? Absolutely. I'm, and maybe that would be more appealing even for a network to pick up. And it's less risky, obviously, of course, too, if you're you're putting it on a streaming platform or you're putting it on TV or whatever. But it's an, it's an interesting idea. Uh, I don't know if you'd be able to get Michael B. Jordan for that. I mean, maybe you would because it's so personally significant to him and uh, he was in the movie or whatnot. But it, it would definitely be an interesting perspective. And I definitely think that they'd be able to more thoroughly explore all the different components. I mean, yes, not only that, you know, this person is innocent, but also there's these other people who you know, maybe they're not innocent, uh, but they still don't deserve to necessarily be on, on, on death row. And I just want to go back quickly and say, I agree that I don't think that, that those moments necessarily undermine the story, but they allude to a uh, and by these ones, I mean the, the moment with Herb in, in, in the prison. I don't think that necessarily undermines the story that they're telling in Just Mercy. I just think it, it alludes to a broader narrative that at times they it felt like they wanted to tell, but they never committed to. And I think that, you know, another setting, whether it be a miniseries, whether another movie, they could further explore that. But I don't know if that would be destined to happen. Um, before we go on any further, I do want to give a shout out uh, to my old college classmate, Jonathan um, who works for Brian Stevenson and actually got his name in the credits for this movie. So shout out to, to Jonathan. That's pretty cool. That's um, cool. Yeah. Okay, Scott, uh, we talked we talked a little bit about how this movie critiques the death penalty, but I wonder if you have any thoughts about maybe how it critiques the criminal justice system as a whole and maybe the way that um, African-Americans or poor people um, are disproportionately affected by um, not just the death row system, but maybe the the criminal justice system as a whole, and also maybe the fact that this is rural Alabama playing a role in that as well. Yeah. I mean, it's this, so this is a more, I think a, maybe a tricky or, or maybe a less tricky even um, critique of, of society. Maybe it's my own experience, you know, going, having gone to, you know, a liberal arts college in Massachusetts and having a lot of people who cared a lot about these issues. And so I, I felt like I knew a lot about this, this type of stuff going in obviously. And I, and I have my own, perspectives and, and beliefs on that. But this movie doesn't pull too many punches uh, with its portrayal of, you know, the criminal justice system and uh, how that is essentially a new proxy for Jim Crow laws. Right. I mean, again, this is not like a, a new idea that the new Jim Crow is a book. I forget, forget the author of the book, but you yeah. know, this is, uh, it's a, I mean, this has been an idea that's been in kind of academic thought at the very least for the last decade, right? The fact that, you know, mandatory minimums, it's not the case in this, in this particular instance, but you know, things like mandatory minimums for drugs, crimes, the the criminal justice, and then other aspects of the criminal justice, I'm just being set up to incarcerate black, black people. And you mentioned the black and, and poor, I think that oftentimes those things are indistinguishable, right? And in, in a lot of communities, black and poor can be synonymous. I mean, obviously, there's, a, there's obviously, ex- always exceptions to rules. But as a, as a sweeping statement, you know, it, generally speaking, black people are poorer in this country than white people um, at, at, a, at a macro level. And so I think that this movie doesn't pull any punches in its portrayal of the Monroeville, Alabama Police Department's uh, use of the criminal justice system to incarcerate black people. I mean, the fact that it's even using um, other, it, I guess to talk about the porno, the fact that it's using a character like Tim Blake Nelson here to incriminate black people and incarcerate black people, uh, it, makes it makes it even dirtier, right? I think that the fact that you have, you know, this system that, you know, it doesn't really matter whether they did it or not. Um, we, this person is causing problems in our community. And so we are going to handle it however we can. And if that's by essentially strong arming or blackmailing other people 
in situations that are dire or, you know, oppressed, then we're going to do that to, to get our way and kind of wielding the sword of justice in a way that's maybe not too just uh, at certain points. I'm not sure that the movie's use of that narrative is particularly nuanced. It's not bad. Uh, I don't think, I don't know how nuanced it is. It also feels like it's, it, it's able to wiggle out of that critique by, I mean, the fact that this movie is set in the 1980s or whatever. Um, yeah. and, and I think that, you know, people can watch this film who are, I mean, I don't know anyone from Monroeville, Alabama, but I'm just trying to imagine people from Monroeville, Alabama watching this movie and potentially just telling themselves, well, you know what? That was 30 years ago. We're not like that anymore. Um, and that may be true. I don't know. I mean, the fact that that sheriff, that sheriff or whatever was still elected until 2019 when he like retired. I mean, that it seems pretty damning to me. I don't know how much it, it, you know, vilifies the sheriff compared to real life. I, I have my own thoughts on that, that are pure speculation about how I feel like it's probably not that inaccurate of a portrayal, but it, I mean, at the same time, it very well could be an inaccurate portrayal for dramatic purposes. I don't know, but it, it's one of those things where I'm not sure how much of a strong statement or a strong impact their perspective on the criminal justice had on me. But again, I'm coming from a background where I'm familiar with this kind of stuff. I have my own beliefs about this kind of stuff um, already. And I, I didn't need this movie to, to sway me one way or the other. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. And I'm in the same boat as you, I think. But yeah, no, I, I think that the through that Tim Blake Nelson char character maybe is where some of this comes out. Like just yeah. the fact that you have the word uh, that the entire case basically, you know, hinges on the word of this single white man. Um, even though you have, you know, dozens of African-Americans on the other side who are saying, no, Walter McMillan was with us. Johnny D was with us the entire day. Uh, he couldn't have committed this murder or whatever. Um, and, you know, but, but no one is listening to that. They're only listening to um, the word of this one white man. I think that says a lot right there. And, and, you know, when ultimately he recants his testimony, um, you know, Rafe Spall's character has no choice but to drop the case at that point, right? Because there, there goes his entire case. Um, and well, so, I mean, really, when we first recant his testimony, it doesn't matter. The judge still says that the that's true, yeah, that it's not enough to to have a retrial, and they have to go to mm -hmm. the appellate court to to actually be ordered to 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 or demand a retrial. And, and yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that's even again talking about the 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 span the expanse of how how wide the criminal justice system uh is against you know black people poor people however you want to describe it there uh is that's one of the things that that might surprise you if you're going into the into the film yeah and you know i think that's an important point because obviously in the end justice in a way is done right and and johnny d gets off of death row and and ray hinton gets off of death row eventually but um Justice isn't always done, right? And we like to think that, oh, if the truth comes out, right? Like if uh, when Tim Blake Nelson recants his testimony and, you know, everyone finally sees the truth, then everything's going to be okay. He's going to get out of prison. But that's not always the case, right? Like even when there was nothing supporting the, the DA's case, nothing left. Um, like you said, the judge still finds it in favor of, of the state, Um and so I think that that's an important point for the movie to make, for sure. Yeah. All right. Last thing I want to talk about, Scott, and we've talked, you know, we, we've alluded to it a little bit, but the the Oscars uh, buzz for this movie and the fact that it didn't get any nominations wasn't really talked about that much at, in the context of any sort of uh, major awards shows or nominations. Um, and I'm just wondering if you have a thought on why that is, because 
you know, this does seem for sure like a Oscar Beatty type movie. It's a, you know, a fact-based, hard-hitting drama. It has big movie stars in it. It has, you know, a, a name director. Um, why do you think that this movie didn't get more attention during awards season? Well, I was actually going to say is that I think its director actually might be one of the reasons why it isn't getting an awards attention. Okay. Daniel Cretton is not an awards director. I mean, he's not. That's he's just true. not. Like, he didn't get any award. I don't think he got nominated for anything for Short Term 12. I don't think. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly didn't get anything for The Glass Castle. Um, and so I, I think that the director is one of the things here that might be holding uh, this back. That being said, uh, to, to put something on the other side of the scales there, I'm the fact that real life portrayals of people often is, is what gets the most awards buzz. There is something that, that did surprise me a little bit here that this didn't get more awards attention just because it's a real life story, right? The fact that Walter McMillan's a real person, the fact that Brian Stevenson is a real person. I thought that it might get more buzz because of that, but it, but it didn't. And I think that part of it is that it's getting released super late in the year. Um, obviously that's not hurting 1917, but when you have a movie like 1917, that's something that's not going to hurt. But I, I think when you release a movie this late, you're rolling the dice. You're either going to be you know, front and center of the conversation or you're not going to be in the conversation at all. I think in some ways, Little Women released a little bit less late than this. But Little Women, I think, also suffered from this earlier on in award season, the fact that it was released so late. And that movie in particular, I know we're digressing for a second, like, there was no reason that movie should have been released on Christmas Day. I mean, that movie was like done in June. Like They could have easily released that at Thanksgiving and been part of the conversation for longer. I, was gonna but, say, I mean, it's a... It's a- Christmas movie, so to speak. Like, no, it's not. <laughs> but, but I mean, I think that's that was probably part of their mentality of uh, releasing it. I mean, not, not uh, first of all, obviously because of the awards consideration, but also because like, I mean, okay, it's not a Christmas movie in the way that the Santa Claus is, right? But Christmas happens in the movie. They, I mean, it's it's winter throughout the movie. Sure. I, I don't know. It, it has that sort of Christmas movie feel to it, even if it's not like explicitly a Christmas. Sure, I get that. I'm just saying, like, from an awards perspective, there's no reason that movie's coming out on Christmas Day. Um, like, if they had been smarter, I think they would have released it on uh, around Thanksgiving. But that's neither here nor there. But I think that that this movie is, like, the ultimate sufferer because it's not as good as Little Women, right? The movie's not, like, isn't able to, like, you know, supersede its, you know, its release position. Uh, I also think that the fact that, again, that, you know... Like the movie's just not as good as some some other films. Like, should it have been more buzz around it before it came out? Maybe, probably. But I also think that this like just isn't that high of a priority uh, for for Warner Brothers uh, this year. I I think that they they just they have so many other irons uh, in the fire and in, in, in promoting other films, right? I mean, they're they're going to be a hundred thousand percent behind Joker. I think that's also a big part of it. Uh, I I think this what this movie was trying to do. Does do the awards even matter for this film? I don't know. Like the, I, when I look back at this film and when I think about this back about this film, I'm going to think about the fact that you know this is a movie about Brian Stevenson that got released in a wide release. So the fact that that narrative and that message is getting pushed, and it's also going to be you know the first film from a major motion picture studio that has an inclusion writer on it. Like this is Michael B. Jordan's production company, and it's the first film under that production banner that has like has the inclusion writer that Frances McDormand kind of demanded back in her acceptance speech in, I think it was 2018, the Oscars in 2018. Yeah. yeah. So the fact that Warner Brothers is supporting that kind of filmmaking, I think it's a start, right? And, you know, if Michael B. Jordan's company um, is going to continue to produce movies like this, at some point it is going to get, they are going to get awards consideration. They are going to get um, set up in a certain way that you're going to get that sort of narrative. But unfortunately, this this just wasn't the film for it. And I think 
maybe this is a bit cynical, but I think if Joker isn't as popular as it is and isn't getting as much awards consideration or before this, maybe Warner Brothers pushes this movie more for awards. I don't know. But um, could they have pushed this, Jamie, especially Jamie Foxx, more for the supporting actor category? Probably, but that's just not how it worked out this year. Um, again, I think Destin Daniel Cretton not being an awards director is something that that probably put a pause on some of it. And, you know, that being, you know, Michael B. Jordan, yes, he's been nominated, hasn't won yet. Um, Brie Larson just didn't have a big enough role, I think, in this film to to warrant uh, an awards push for that from that lens either. So there's just little things here and there that kind of added up to really, I think, be a barrier to this movie in award season. And I think kind of the first two or that the success of Joker from Warner Brothers perspective and pushing that and putting a lot of their advertising, their advertising FYC dollars behind that, but also it's release date. The fact that it did come out very late. Yeah. That's annoying. When you think about how little Joker says compared to how much this movie says, um, but you know, that's the way it goes. It did well. So um, I, I, that's why they're throwing their support behind it, I guess. But yeah, I don't think I have too much more to add to what you said there. I think that those are all probably good explanations. I think the release date, uh, definitely did hurt it. Um, and that's a shame. Um, but you know, the, the people who see this movie, it's doing reasonably well, as you said, the people who see this movie uh, have been affected by it. Obviously it has that a plus cinema score. So I think ultimately that is the, you know, the, the real test of whether this movie has been successful and not awards consideration. Cause like you said, I don't know that they were ever really going for that. Yeah. I don't think so. It's also just not popular enough. Like, and this has to do with the release date, but I mean, 20, I mean, how many your movie has to be pretty good to only make twenty million dollars and get nominated for and uh, get nominated get a lot of nominations yeah, for an Oscar. True. That is true. Um, okay, Scott. With that, I think we can move into our wrap up phase. What is your favorite scene or moment from Just Mercy? Yeah, there's there's a couple that stick out in in my mind. And I think the one that I'm going to go with is related to that scene or part of the scene with Herb and or Herb in the in the prison. Uh, not just, of course, the you know finale of that scene and the climax of that scene. But the buildup to it, right, when you have when it kind of cuts back to uh, Walter McMillan and, and and Ray up in the prison and, and they start, you know, banging their cups uh, on the on the jail door. I mean, just just talking about it and thinking about it is kind of tingling my spine a little bit. Uh, it's a really powerful moment uh, in the film. And then, of course, the climax ends the scene in, in a way that. I don't know, it just leaves you stunned and, and speechless. You know, you know, it's coming the whole time, but it still takes your breath away when it happens. And uh, it's just a really powerful scene for what is still a powerful movie in, fight of, in spite of the, some of the criticisms that we've leveled at it. Yeah, he has a great line, too. And when Brian first comes to him and, sa- and he says, I've had more people asking me today how I'm doing or th- if they can help me, um, if they can get anything for me, then they have my whole life. Um, and I think that says a lot right there. Yeah, I mean, that's just, that's a really standout sequence from the movie. Like you said, the buildup, when they start playing the old rugged cross, that got to me. Um, and But yeah, I, I like the, you, you mentioned what's going on with the other inmates at the time. And, and the fact that, first of all, when Herb gets taken away and they, they tell him, or, or Johnny D tells him, I think, that, you know, we're all going with you. We're all going with you to the, you know, to, to be executed. This is where he's going. Um, and then I love the way that that comes back at the end, right? When, when Johnny D is being released and O'Shea Jackson Jr.'s character, Ray Hinton tells him, we're all going with you. And and they start banging the cuffs and everything. The way to, to see both sides of the, the coin in that way, I think um, is really, really very powerful and very emotionally affecting. So um, those, those were definitely the moments that stood out to me, but there are plenty of good moments in the film. Yeah, totally agree. All right, Scott, what's, what would you give Just Mercy out of 10? 
7.5. Yeah, 7.6 for me, just a tad higher there. Um, very solid. I, I absolutely recommend it. Um, and I think it tells a really important story. Yeah, it definitely gets bonus points for the story it's telling. Okay, Scott, uh, when we come back, we have a few news stories to talk about, um, including uh, some casting news for Mission Impossible and for the MCU um, and a few other assorted news items from the past couple of weeks. Uh, We'll get to those after the break. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Like Scott alluded to before the break, we are going to talk about some news today, which is the first time in a while I think that we've done that. Maybe the fir- definitely the first time in the new year I think that we've we've talked about news. And there have been some pretty big casting news, as you alluded to, Scott. And why not start with the biggest? That's Christian Bale, of course, famous for his role as playing the Dark Knight in Chris Nolan's uh, Dark Knight trilogy, Batman. Uh, he's coming back. He's doing another comic book movie. And it's not for DC. It's for it's for Marvel. He's joining the MCU for an undisclosed role in Thor: Love and Thunder. Uh, all the reports around this it was one just shocking, shocking that this is happening. I could not believe this news uh, when I heard it. But two, it's just he wants to come and he wants to work with Taika Waititi. That's why he's doing this. He wants to work with Taika. Scott, what do you think of this casting news? I mean, it makes sense, right? When you when you phrase it that way, that he wants to work it work with Taika because who wouldn't want to work with Taika Waititi right now? He uh, has had such a breakthrough year. His name is circulating around so many different major projects, yeah. um, including Star Wars too. Akira, um, the fact that I mean that's on hold, but the fact yeah. that he's circling around Akira too. Um, so, so it makes sense, right? That obviously, you know, Christian Bale, um, he did the superhero thing uh, back in the early to mid mid uh, to early two thousands, um, and he, you know, he did the superhero thing then. So for him to come back. Um, I think it would have had it would have taken a lot. It would have had to have somebody like Taika Waititi, um, you know, connected to it. And, it, you know, it would have had to come, I think, in the MCU. Right. Which is um, something that is going to be guaranteed to be successful, is guaranteed to probably going to be a solid to good movie. Right. We talk about the fact that there aren't many stinkers in the MCU, um, you know, when you talk about the quality of the films. Yeah. Um, and so I think that you know, maybe it's a little bit of an interesting choice for him to go back into this world. But I think when you consider all of the fact, those factors and the fact that this movie is going to be incredibly successful and has Taika attached to it, um, I think it makes sense. And I'll be interested to see what kind of role he has, if he'll be a villain or, um, you know, is he going to be in future films? Is he going to be some kind of a new um, hero character for, you know, to, to add into the MCU? I'd be surprised if that was the case, but yeah. who knows? I'm not ruling it out. Yeah, I was going to say that too. I'd be I'd be a little surprised if he's taking on a role that's going to include multiple movies, especially if he only wants to work with Taika Waititi. I mean, how many more movies is this guy going to direct in the MCU? There can't be that many Thor movies uh, left. Uh, but, you know, if this one's super successful, then they'll find some way to bring him back, I'm sure. But yeah, this definitely makes sense. And Christian Bale, there had to have been a, a really good reason for him to come back. I mean, initially, I just thought they must be paying him a ton of money, which I'm sure that they are. But also... I think, you know, Christian Bale is the kind of actor who's going to seek out the directors and the projects that he wants to work on. And if he wants to work with Taika Waititi, his agent's going to get him a project with Taika Waititi. And that's just the kind of actor that Christian Bale is. You talk about he's a movie star. 
uh, he's a draw. I mean, of course, Chris Hemsworth as Thor is 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 a star as well. It's not like it's not like a Thor: Love and Thunder needs another movie star to get people to get butts and seats. I mean, the MCU just having a movie in the MCU does that at this point. But the fact that he has that kind of star power and he's the one going, and, you know, he's able to go and say, "All right, I want to work on this project. Get me in this project," um, and that just again speaks to just how awesome Taika Waititi and and how much his star uh, power has risen as a director. Right, the, you know, you mentioned all these projects that he's circling around. I mean, he's the hottest franchise director in 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 Hollywood right now, probably. I mean, the fact that you know what we're going to talk about in a second, his his the rumors around him directing a Star Wars movie, Akira. I'm shocked that Sony hasn't gotten to do Uncharted. I mean, honestly, at this point, yeah, <laughs> I can't believe that they're not they're not doing that. And the fact that he's the kind of creator that feels like he respects the material that he works with while adding his own flavor and adding something that just really resonates with everyone who watches his movies, right? Like Jojo Rabbit's not my favorite movie of the year, but it's unabashedly Taika and I'm glad that he made the film. Um, and I, I just think that it's, uh, it's awesome. And, and really the more that I think about it, not surprising at all that someone like Christian Bale would want to work with him. Yeah. You know, the other casting news that you alluded to is one where, you know, when we were talking about this, uh, you know, going back and forth and this was first announced that Nicholas Holt is someone who had a rough year. I mean, he, he's in a couple movies, X-Men Dark Phoenix, obviously probably Dark the Phoenix, most popular, yeah. which no one really liked. He was in Tolkien. No one saw that. He was in The Current War. I don't think anyone saw that either. And kind of most importantly, it, going from you know one Batman to another, he lost out to Robert Pattinson uh, for Batman. I mean, the fact it was between him and 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 our Pats for that role and and uh, Matt Reeves went, went with Robert Pattinson. And so a really rough year for Nicholas Holt. But uh his 2020 already looks like it's off to a better start because he has been added to the cast of Mission Impossible 7. Again, in an, in an undisclosed role here, we don't know if it's going to be a role that will span you know, both Mission Impossible 7 and Mission Impossible 8 because, as we know, Christopher McQuarrie here is, is directing two movies, two Mission Impossible films back-to-back. We don't know what kind of role it's going to be, so maybe he'll be in both, maybe he won't. I personally kind of like the suspense of whether he's going to be in both, so you don't really know where this character is going to end up at the end of Mission Impossible 7. But, Scott, how big is this for Nicholas Holt? Yeah, this is really big for him, and I'm very excited because I'm am a big Nicholas Holt fan. Um, you know, he's done so so many great. He's had so many great roles, whether it's um, in The Favorite or Mad Max Fury Road or Warm Bodies or the whole X Men uh, franchise. He has a lot of great credits, and I think he's very underrated. Um, so it's great to see him attached to another big franchise, right? Because the X Men uh, franchise obviously fizzled out in the end, um, and you know, didn't become probably what he hoped it would become when he signed on and, you know, the first couple of movies were, were really solid. Um, and so I think to, to step into a franchise, which is just absolutely on fire right now and, and where you could argue there has never been a bad movie uh, in mission impossible series. Um, I think is awesome and a no brainer for him and a great career choice. Um, and yeah, uh, kind of like with Bale, I'll be interested to see what kind of role he has. Will he be sort of a villain in the mold of, of, what Henry Cavill showed up to do in, in Mission Impossible Fallout, or will he be a new, you know, addition to the team with Benji and Luther and everyone? Um, I don't know. I'll be interested to see, but I'm excited particularly because I wanted him or, you know, I wanted him to be considered for James Bond. I don't think it's going to happen, but um, the fact that he is attached to the even better spy franchise, in my opinion, uh, is, is cool. Hot, I don't know if that's a hot take. I mean, I totally agree. Maybe that is a hot take, but I would agree with that take. Um, we'll see. We'll see if no time to die. It's easier to be good when you only have six movies as opposed to 23 or whatever, however many James Bond. Movies. 24 going on 25. 
Um, yeah. I think it yeah. is what it is. Yeah. I mean, some people might say Mission Impossible 2 was a bit of a stinker, but uh, I haven't seen that film in probably a decade. So I'd I mean, probably... comparatively, yes, but I don't know if it's considered like a bad movie overall. Yeah, I don't know, but you know, may- maybe we'll do a countdown series yeah. for Mission Impossible Eight or something. And it's been twenty years since that movie. Yeah, True. yeah, maybe we can. I would love to do that countdown. Series. No, I'm. I, I was actually thinking about this just a little back, little backstage for our podcast. I've I've been thinking about the countdown series that we'll be doing in the future, and it was me just like, oh yeah, we can do it for Mission Impossible Seven twenty twenty one. But I'm like, but then Mission Impossible Eight is coming out like the next year, so we probably should just year, wait, yeah. <laughs> just wait to do it for Mission Impossible Eight. Yeah. Uh, no, I want any excuse to go revisit revisit those films. I almost went back last night and watched. I was trying to decide between Rogue Nation and Fallout, and then I just watched TV instead. Uh, but yeah, those movies are fantastic, and I'm mm-hmm. excited for Nicholas Holt on this one. Yeah. All right, switching back to the MCU. I mean, we talked about Christian Bale, but another project of the MCU, of course, is Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, a really important project from the way they sold it at, uh, was it D23 or Comic-Con? I can't remember when they unveiled everything. I think it was Comic-Con. Um, yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, so you know, a really important project they have. They're talking about how this is going to tie together a lot of different projects uh, in the MCU more broadly, specifically that um, the Scarlet, yeah, WandaVision, the Scarlet Witch uh, Vision series. <laughs> now that they're going to tie that into the MCU that way. Well, it lost its director recently. Scott Derrickson is out over creative differences uh, for the MCU. Some of the things that I was just hearing, some of the reports that I was reading, was that he didn't think that he could hit with his. The movie that he wanted to make, he couldn't hit the deadline that Marvel was pushing. Uh, obviously, this film is scheduled to release in the first half of 2021. And a movie, I mean, Doc, uh, you haven't seen Dr. Strange, I guess you don't know this, but obviously an effects-heavy movie, something that takes a ton of visual effects. And it's one of those films where, you know, you see the director go for the sequel and you're like, you know, is anyone they bring in going to be able to have the vision that Scott Derrickson did? Because so much of that just has to be in your head when you're shooting those scenes and directing those scenes uh, just because so much of it is visual effects. And so you wonder what they're able to do. I've heard different rumors about who's going to be involved coming back, Scott, between uh, even the showrunner for WandaVision might actually, that he's rumored to be the one who might come on to direct Scott. But first, I guess, what do you think about this news that Scott Derrickson is, is out of Dr. Strange and the Multiverse of Madness? And two, who do you think if anyone might be a good replacement? Yeah, I mean, I, I hope it is more kind of a deadline thing than it is like quibbling over the direction for this movie to take because I know that Derrickson was interested in making this kind of a horror film yeah. um, from, from what we understood. And obviously that is what he has sort of made his name off of directorially. Yeah. Um, and is- at Comic-Con, they announced it as a horror movie, but yeah. it feels like since then they've been rolling that back inch by inch, like every single piece of of news that they release about it, it feels less like a horror movie. Yeah. And and that's my point. I think that um, is disappointing if that's the case, because it almost makes me think about Star Wars. Right. You bring in a director who is known for doing something and then you're like, oh, wait, we don't actually want you to do that thing because we want you to make, you know, the same thing uh, over and over again. Um, And so I hope like the MCU, I think, in general, has been really good about bringing in creative directors and, you know, like Taika Waititi, for example, and allowing them to make the movie that they want to make. and I hope that I don't think that we're getting away from that. Um, but I, it does just give me a little bit of pause in hearing this news. And like you said, hearing maybe that they are taking a step away from doing a horror movie, because I think that would be something uh, really interesting for the MCU to do and would, you know, answer some of the critiques of the MCU that, oh, all of the movies are very similar. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I feel like we talk about every single time we talk about the MCU on this podcast is that one of the things that makes it so successful is that it has all these movies in the same universe, but 
they're all different genres or different fla- or different subgenres of things. And horror is definitely one that they have not dipped their toes into for, I think, somewhat obvious reasons, right? I think the the mainstream of, of appeal of a film goes down with – it isn't a four-quadrant film anymore as soon as you make it a horror movie. I think it's, it's almost automatically not a four-quadrant film anymore. That doesn't mean that horror movies can't be successful, but you might be alienating some of your some of your audience with a horror film. And so I think that – you know, maybe some, you know, maybe Kevin Feige and some of the other executives over at Marvel are getting a little bit cold feet about a horror film. Uh, we'll see. We'll see who they bring in. I think who they bring in to replace Scott Derrickson will be pretty telling about what direction they're going to go if they are if they bring in someone who has you know zero horror experience and has only ever made like comedies. Then we probably know that they're not going to make a horror film. Um, but I mean, again, that's again that's speculation. Maybe there's an exception to that. But I think that it is a little bit concerning at the at this point. But that being said. If anyone has earned our trust uh, in guiding a, a ship to landing, uh, the MCU and Kevin Feige is definitely that. So hopefully, they, what the, whatever they do deliver, I hope stays true to that original intention of Derrickson, uh, especially if he still gets a screenwriting credit for it and, and it's his script and stuff. Um, and is good. I mean, we'll see. Yeah. No, as far as who who I would want, I don't know. I mean, like, I guess I, I want it to be a horror movie. So, oh, yeah, um, yeah. Well, I was going to say Robert Eggers, but yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, those are the, those are the hot names for black and white Marvel film. I know like that. Th- those are the hot names in horror. But as I was the point I was going to make is that I don't think Marvel's letting those guys near one of their movies. I think that's just a little too out there for them. Um, you got a better chance of Warner Brothers letting them near a DC project than Marvel. Yeah, that's probably too. What about John Krasinski? He just made a really good horror um, movie with the, A Quiet Place. I mean, I, yeah, just a thought. I wonder if his schedule would work out with the press tour that I'm sure he yeah. has to do for a quiet place too. But that's an interesting thought. Yeah, and I mean, especially right. To, that's what I was going to say. He made a horror movie that was a huge hit in yeah. the quiet place. Yeah, and we'll see how successful a quiet place two is. But unfortunately, I don't think Disney has the luxury of time here, and Marvel has the luxury of time in deciding who to replace it if they are going to try to hit better. You know, Q2 2021 yeah. uh, release for this film. Yeah. Well, switching gears back over to uh, to Taika Waititi as well here from our first story, which I mean, was st- sticking with the MCU, but going to st- or sticking with Disney, but going to Star Wars now. And that is the news that he has. You know, he is rumored to be uh, the person next in line to direct a Star Wars movie. I mean, we were joking before we started recording here that, you know, I think about five people have been rumored to be next in line for a Star Wars movie. And, and who who knows who's writing? Who knows who's, you know, executive producing? I mean, I think that the common sense logic here is that whichever movie that Taika is going to do, because it's going to be after Thor, Love and Thunder. Sure, certainly. I mean, that's the next thing that's on his plate. Um, it's probably the Kevin Feige produced Star Wars movie. I mean, you have to think that that is the, per- you know, that is the project that he'd be doing. But I mean, there's, there's this kind of free floating, you know, uh, DB Weiss and um, I'm forgetting the other, his partner's name. David Benioff. David, David Benioff. There you go. Yeah. David Benioff, DB Weiss trilogy or projects. That's kind of just floating, in dead space at this point, there's the still rumored and not yet canceled Ryan Johnson uh, written or produced movies that are still hanging out over there. And then there's this Kevin Feige project too. You know, do you think it's going to be one of these things? Do you think it's going to be a completely new thing, Scott? Like what, 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 what do you make of this? Who knows? Um, I, I really don't know where it's going to fit in. I mean, I guess it would make the most sense to pair him with Feige because they've worked together before. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that is probably about as exciting, excited as I would get for a Star Wars movie is if if they were paired together. But 
it's still not that excited, right? Because I don't think that movies needs to be the future for Star Wars, uh, at least in you know in the in the immediate time period. Um, I think that they need to focus on their TV shows and other content right now. Um, I think that that is where, like, obviously they just had a huge hit with The Mandalorian, something that Taika Waititi was involved with and directed yeah. one of the best episodes of the, the season finale. So um, I think that's where they need to, to make their money right now because that's where the fan base is the most united. Um, and, I mean, like, after, after Rise of Skywalker, like, I'm, I'm in no hurry to see a Star Wars movie, even if it is Taika Waititi, Kevin Feige. You know, yeah, and especially the of. downward trajectory that the movies have seen in terms of grossing at the box office. Like, yes, is Disney still making money on these films? 100%. Absolutely still making money. But, you know, we've seen this downward trajectory before, and it usually ends it, it ends up in a bad place, I think. I mean, we saw it with with the DC franchise when, when people started to become disillusioned with that between um, Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, and, and Justice League. I think Wonder, Wonder Woman was the exception there, but uh, we saw a downward trend there, and, and that kind of killed that expanded universe. And I don't think anything will ultimately kill Star Wars, but I think you're right. I mean, focusing their content on those TV shows, those, well, what I thought was going to be a miniseries, but is now definitely just a TV show because they're already working on season two of The Mandalorian, I think makes a lot of sense. And, you know, the rumors around Kathleen Kennedy's exit and them actually, and, uh, you know, the heads of Disney, you know, whether it's Bob Iger, Alan Horn, whoever it is, giving Lucasfilm to John Favreau and um, who, who did he create Mandalorian with? Um, uh, Dave Filoni. Dave Filoni. Yeah. Ta- ta- the fact that they're talking about giving Favreau and Filoni Lucasfilm, I think that that would that would show the intention to go the direction of focusing on the TV series. And honestly, at this point, like I'm not sure what they could do to get people more excited for a movie than one of these TV shows. I mean, they're doing the Obi Wan TV series. They're doing season two of The Mandalorian. I mean. We're going to talk next on our on our episode, our second episode of the week uh, about, you know, briefly, at least about the Mandalorian and, and how, you know, maybe we were a little bit mixed on it. But there's some incredibly awesome moments in that series. And there was just nothing uh, in, you know, their most recent movie. And you could even argue their most recent two movies, if you include Solo in that, that sparked the same uh, excitement and hype and um, awe, I think, that I got out of some moments in The Mandalorian, even though there were some down moments for that as well. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Yeah, But, I mean, if you are going to go in a direction of a movie, I'd agree with you. Like, uh, Kevin Feige produced Taika Waititi directed and written Star Wars film would be the thing that probably got me the most excited. I don't think of it. I don't think anything else could get me more excited than that for Star Wars at this point, uh, unless Ryan Johnson's trilogy actually goes through. I think I might actually be really excited about that, but I just don't see that happening. What if it stars Michael B. Jordan and Amy Adams? <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, I, I would definitely be excited, but I do not see that happening at all, yeah. especially since Michael B. Jordan's overall deals with Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, moving past that and, and away from the sad parts of our life, uh, <laughs> there's a couple other news items that I think we can run through a little bit more quickly. First, I think just in the thread of and theme of awards conversations that are constantly happening this time of year, 1917 uh, continues to show that, you know, maybe maybe it's the Oscar favorite for Best Picture as it takes home the top prize at the PGAs uh, as a time of recording last night. That happened last night. Scott, do you, do you does this you know, we had our conversation last week about how you thought Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was the front runner and that 1917 and maybe Joker were you know, the, the close contenders right behind. Does this shift that race in the race at all? The fact that the PGAs has a 72% accuracy rate of predicting best picture. Obviously that's not a hundred percent, but it, it did predict green book last year and it's been quite successful in the past. 
I still think it's going to be the Tarantino, but I, yeah, this definitely makes me, you know, well, it would make me less surprised than if 1917 ends up winning because of this, right? Like people often talk about with best picture, who does the award go to? It goes to the producers. And that's obviously the entire Academy votes on best picture, but um, you know, that's who won the big prize at the PGA, right? Which goes to the producers. So, which is um, Sam Mendes. I mean, it's it's still going yeah, to Sam Mendes, sure. basically. Sure, but I I, yeah. I just mean that's who the the category is targeted at. So, yeah, um, yeah no, this is a a good boost for 1917, certainly with a couple of weeks to go here until the Oscars. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's a two horse race between those two, probably. Yeah. And just a slight digression talking about the Oscars and, and producers. I had forgotten until recently that Bradley Cooper was is like the executive producer on Joker. On Joker, yeah. And I would just I think that I would be so sad if he <laughs> won his like first producing Oscar for Joker and after he missed out last year on Stars. Yeah. An actually good movie. Yeah. No, that would that would be hilarious, but yeah. I don't think it's gonna happen. Hilarious in the worst way, of course. I also I also don't I can't even say it. I don't want to. I don't want to speak it. I don't want to speak it yet. Never mind. We'll move on. Um, yeah, two more things here quickly. Billie Eilish. I mean, we talked about Bond briefly earlier. Billie Eilish is going to be uh, the one performing the No Time to Die credits theme song uh, for the film. Scott, you on Twitter or in our conversation, I can't remember which it was, said that they couldn't have picked a better person uh, to do the song. Scott, can you elaborate on that? Well, I, I think they could have picked one better person, and that's Lana Del Rey. But mm. as a second choice, Billie Eilish. Yes, absolutely. I think. Um, obviously she's a hot artist right now. Uh, but I think that she has a super like dark chill vibe that works perfectly well with the James Bond theme song. Um, and you know, has, has a very distinctive voice that I think, um, she's going to be able to do something really cool and interesting, which I want to hear because a lot of the James Bond songs recently, I mean, like people love Skyfall, like it's pretty bland to me. Um, and that's what I was going to say. Not, I probably I don't think I've really liked one that much since the Chris Cornell song for Casino Royale. So I think this is going to be uh, something to watch out for for sure. Yeah, I mean, do you even remember who did the Spectre one? It was Sam Smith, just saying. It. But it was that's right. Writings yeah, yeah, on yeah. the Wall wasn't that the name of it? Yeah, no, it, it won. It things. won the Oscar. I'm pretty sure. It did actually. I mean, it, I just I think that to that point, like it's hard to remember who did those because yeah, the, the Adele one's obviously well. iconic because it's Adele, but they can do better. And they will, because Billie Eilish not only performing this, but also writing, I think, already wrote it uh, with Phineas, her her brother. So Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Last bit of news before we move on to one trailer. Uh, and this is one that I think, you know, maybe isn't going to interest too many people as a news story. But it caught my eye, not the first time that I saw the news, but after I read a little bit more about it. And that is that Oprah Simmons, Oprah, wow, Oprah <laughs> has, Oprah Winfrey has exited the Russell Simmons kind of Me Too documentary uh, and the part that actually caught my eye, Scott, was not that I gave a crap whether Oprah was part of a Russell Simmons Me Too documentary, but more that it's a Kirby Dick uh, and Amy Zeeling, I think is how you pronounce it, or Zeeler, pronounce her name, uh, documentary. They are the kind of the documentary directing duo that did, uh, they did a few documentaries about sexual assault, one about college campuses, one in the military, uh, and they have a very strong track record of sexual misconduct. Uh, in a variety of different environments. And the fact that they're taking it on in kind of the Hollywood space or Hollywood adjacent space, this this documentary is called On the Record. Uh, and the fact that Oprah exited this project, I found really interesting. When I was reading more about it, it's, 
it almost made me wonder if Oprah's exiting because she's been like being pressured by Russell Simmons is like, I don't know what that even would be uh, to, to exit the documentary. And that she states that there's one story, there's a story told in the documentary that is unable to be corroborated with independent evidence. And that's the re and she doesn't want to attach her name to something that to her feels weak and shaky, man. I just really don't like this at all from her. I find it really surprising especially the context around around it that I kind of just described. It, it, it bothers me a lot uh, specifically about, about Oprah here, Scott. And I don't know. I, you, you're probably less knowledgeable about the situation just because, I mean, I'm not very knowledgeable and I don't think, I think that you have read less about this than I have, but want to get your thoughts quickly here. I mean, Oprah is Oprah, right? Like she, she has, she knows her audience, right? And she, she has a brand. Like, yeah. Right. And, and th there's not a lot of people out there who are like, oh, I hate Oprah. Like, I don't like Oprah. There's just not a lot of reason to dislike her. She's just very like inoffensive in my opinion. And so I think that's probably one of the things, one of the reasons why, like, um, you know, even if this is true, right. That one of the stories isn't corroborated. Um, I'm I, knowing, knowing what Kirby Dick has done in the past, right. With the invisible war and the hunting ground and those movies that yeah. you mentioned, um, I trust that he is being responsible in the film that he is making. Um, but I still think it from Oprah's perspective, I understand why she wouldn't want to be connected, um, you know, to that because of her brand, right. Because of her audience, anything that can harm that I think is something that she's going to be staying away from, but um, I'm not going to be staying away from this movie. I think it's going to be really good. Like, you know, I, those documentaries I mentioned are fantastic. This film is not yet rated another Curry Dick documentary that I love. Um, he's one of the best to, you know, do documentaries nowadays. Um, and I think this totally makes sense for uh, his next step. Uh, like you said, given given the hunting ground of the Invisible War and these movies that he's made, I think this is the natural next place to go. Yeah, no, it, it definitely feels right. And I'll be interested to see because I think with Oprah or without Oprah, this movie will, will come out um, and I will watch it. I don't know if it'll get that wide of an audience, but I will watch it. Yeah. All right, Scott, last thing, switching over to trailers here. We got one trailer uh, for a film that's not in the MCU, but certainly is MCU adjacent, and that is Morbius, the Spider-Man universe here. So MCU adjacent, like I mentioned, being run by Sony here, uh, produced and, and directed out of, or sorry, produced and distributed out of Sony. And what did you think of this first trailer for the the vampire, the Jared Leto vampire movie? Yeah, kind of a shrug of the shoulders for me, honestly. I think this doesn't look like anything particularly new. Um in terms of sort of the origin story and um, you know, the vibe that this movie is giving off and Jared Leto, right. Himself. I don't think this is a, this is a particularly out there performance for him. I think this is pretty in line with the kind of roles he tends to gravitate towards, at least in recent years. The one thing of course, which does pique my interest, probably the one thing that piqued everyone's interest is that Michael Keaton shows up as Adrian Toomes at the end of this trailer, um, yeah. sort of teasing maybe like some sort of Spider-Man villain universe that maybe they I mean, I'm sure Sony would want to try to get Venom in there as well. Um, but I think that's you know, part I, of the deal for sure. So, yeah, I mean, this movie's going to come out. I'm going to watch it. I don't know that I'm going to love it, but um, yeah, that, that's my take. That's my very uh, down the line take on it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't say that I feel that differently after watching the trailer. I just, yeah, it, it looks like a Jared Leto vampire movie. And like when I heard this movie's coming out, when I heard that they cast Jared Leto as, as Morbius, I'm like, I mean, I, I know what this film is going to look like already. I know exactly yeah. what I what I imagine it is, and it's that. I think what it what it what it'll be where it'll be interesting is where it goes, right? Like we know it's going to be some sort of origin story. We know what it's doing with that. But I think again, to your point, the interesting part of it is the fact that there is that 
there is that tease of this is directly connected uh, to the Spider-Man part of the MCU. Now, would we ever see Morbius in an MCU proper film? Probably not. But I think it 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 will pique interest in that way. And I think if they if they go that direction with the with the main thrust of the film, that could be really interesting. Uh, obviously, we thought Michael Keaton was going to be in Far From Home. I mean, he's like in the credits, but wasn't. I don't ever remember seeing him in the movie. Uh, I don't know if that might if that is like tied in with that at all, or or what that what might be going on there. But the fact that there is some connection. I mean, we see a, a poster. I think a wanted poster of Peter Parker also in the trailer um in, in like the background of one of the shots and so they're they're not being shy about teasing the connection there and i, and I think that that's a smart decision i think that, that will get people more interested in, in what otherwise looks like a, a very standard vampire film and um, certainly an origin story as well so i think if they if they push that a little bit further and, and try to do something interesting with almost immediately building in the universe again i don't i don't necessarily mean making the movie about the universe but build in that universe i think that they're they might be able to construct something more interesting than otherwise would be yeah no i mean yeah i think this movie is going to find an audience venom was obviously a huge hit so yeah still don't understand that at all yeah that should just about do it uh for this episode of some like it scott um i will say that since this is the part where i usually say my last spiel of the episode that i do want to give a shout out to potentially one of the early candidates for most hilarious moment of the decade um, which was last night when Tennessee and Vanderbilt played and Vanderbilt had a 1,080 game streak of making at least one three pointer in a game. And which I, I believe is the longest active streak in, in college basketball. And the streak was broken uh, last night against Tennessee. The end of the game was pretty hilarious. Their fans were booing them for going to the basket to like take easy baskets, uh, take easy two pointers instead of, you know, shooting the three to try to keep the strike. Uh, the streak going and then it ended with at the buzzer uh, I mean Tennessee was winning the game by 20 but at the buzzer Vanderbilt putting up a a wide open three and it rimming in and out Um, and their fans just crumpling to the ground in uh, you know in disappointment I I loved it Uh, so there you go I had I had to uh, make sure to mention that but you gotta have something to hold on to I guess Mm -hmm. if you're especially if you're a Vanderbilt fan because you're not going to be holding on to any wins um Oof. They haven't won an SEC game in over a year. Um, but anyway, um, that should do it for this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed uh, this episode of the podcast. Uh, if you have and you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. And even if you can't support us over there on Patreon, uh, don't forget to like, rate, review, subscribe, do all of the things on your preferred podcast app. Um, don't forget about our Oscar pool, which is going on right now. Um, you can find that on our, our social media pages. You can sign up uh, to do the Oscar pool. Winner gets to um, choose a movie for us to review and can appear as a guest, just as Jeremy Rubel did last year with us talking about All About Eve. Um, so make sure to check that out uh, and make sure to check out uh, our next couple of episodes. Our next episode will be a special uh, top five TV shows of 2019 episode that we'll be doing. Uh, and then after that, we'll be back with our first movie review of 2020 the gentleman from Guy Ritchie. Uh, Until then, for Scott Sheldon, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you next time. Make us review cats.